Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 47, Times Monster. Welcome to episode 47 of the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always is my partner in historical crime fighting, Chris Paget. How's it going, Chris? Hey, not too bad. Uh, we watched a little bit of Star Wars over the weekend, Josh, you know, the old school stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I realized that some mornings I get up and I'm Han Solo. Other mornings I get up and I'm dying Yoda. <laughs> Just but, disappearing in your robe, huh? Yes. I'm happy to say this morning for this episode, you got the Han Solo version. We need Han Solo this episode. This, this is one that, uh, you know, I, I might say this more than once across our podcast, but this is one I've been really, really looking forward to especially for the past few weeks as we realized it was it was happening. We have such an exciting guest for this episode, uh, and that is Stanford's Priya Satya. And, I mean, we've mentioned her so many times uh, throughout the podcast, maybe as many times as Ringo Starr at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, neck and neck with Ringo, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, <laughs> we'll set this up for our listeners. This is a big deal for us because we were reading... Uh, Priya's work uh, at some point, I think in the fall last year, uh, when her book was published, Time's Monster. And we had originally come across a New Yorker review article by Maya Jasanoff. And I think it, it connected with us both immediately as we were, uh, you know, working on the podcast episodes. But, but even more than that, right, it was the history outside our window, the history of now that this book seemed to address itself to so in such a vital way yes absolutely and you know it's it's one of those things and this this happens once in a while where where you know the right book comes along at just the right time and it crystallizes a lot of stuff you've been thinking about Mm -hmm. and and for me this this really was that book for me um it was kind of circling around a lot of ideas but couldn't quite you know get my finger on it couldn't quite uh you know get it right in my mind. And, and as soon as I read even the introduction of, of Time's Monster, the book that we'll be talking about this week, uh, so much stuff made sense. And as we're going to talk about in the outro as well, it really helps make sense of a lot of, of what's happening um, still in, in the world today, uh, particularly in the way that, that people still think about history, still think about the present, still think about the future. And we'll, we'll get into that more, I think, in the outro. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, and, and look, here's a, uh, you know, here's a scholar. I hate to say she's an emerging scholar because she's had already a pretty long and distinguished uh, career. Uh, but as a public intellectual, as a, yes. as a historical voice in the larger public forum, uh, you'll see her work in, in any number, right, of, of familiar um, uh, sort of media organs and whatnot that she has something really vital to say about the nature of these systems that, uh, you know, that govern us, that, that we live in. And so what? So what do we, you know, we reached out, right? Knowing no better, mm-hmm. right? You know, we yep. reached out to Priya at Stanford. 
and said, uh, hey, you want to come on History Against the Grain? And, uh, you know, uh, she was wonderfully gracious. Uh, we told her that our, you know, our audience uh, with, with academics, with teachers, with, you know, uh, uh, a general audience of, of people, folks who are just interested. We, we felt that her voice deserves to be heard even, you know, even even in the podcast sphere, you know, in other words, the, the more channels uh, she has to talk about this ongoing, you know, h historical evolution, you know, of, of the Western world, of the of the former colonial world, of of our global society, the more she has a chance to talk about it to the the the, the more people, you know, different audiences, uh, that 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 argument, that discussion, that conversation gains traction, you know. Yeah, and you know, one of the, I think one of the reasons we both kind of latched onto her work is because she's talking not just about history, but but the ways that we think about history and the way that history, you know, particularly in, in times monster, determine how we think and how we act a, as well. So it's this kind of meta historical set of ideas mm -hmm. that are they're so useful and so necessary for uh, this current situation. And, and, and so I think primary to what we've been trying to do on the podcast as well. No doubt, no doubt, because I think we, as soon as we started doing the podcast, you know, Josh, uh, that we realized this wasn't just about looking through a lens at what was happening, whether it be just in our own day or even in the historical past, uh, obviously that was going to be a great frame for us. But, you know, it's like I, I sometimes quote the old Stephen Stills line, you know, something's happening here. What yeah. it is and exactly clear, some of yeah. our audience members will know that line, is that uh, it felt like something was happening here with this profession of ours, with this yes. this larger historical discussion by historians about the nature of the narratives they use to discuss the past. So we weren't just some sort of third party objective uh, you know, witness to something. Sometimes they say, you know, history is a witness. Well, as Priya Satya says, you know, it's more like well, history's an accomplice, you know, in yes. other words. And so I felt that something was happening. A lot of young scholars, many of whom we've had on the program, uh, certainly, uh, you know, Professor Satya, and, and for our own part with the podcast, that we were trying to understand how the stories we've told in the past have somehow been implicated in the history itself and how therefore we had to find new ways to frame these historical discussions so that we weren't ultimately accomplices to the things, the systems, you know, we're trying to to take apart or replace. Absolutely. And I, I just want to read a, a real quick quote from the book because it does help crystallize, you know, what she's trying to do and, and one of the reasons why we're so uh, attracted to her ideas. And she says, history was remade in the crucible of 20th century anti-colonialism, but the discipline has yet to come to terms with its role as time's monster. And as, as you suggested, we don't want to be complicit in, mm -hmm. in this stuff. We want to be fixing these problems. We want to be making our discipline, which we love, mm -hmm. um, something that we can be proud of and something that's, that's helping to create a better world as opposed to just reifying these old structures of power, uh, these, these ideas about the past, um, and these these systems of, of of power that have been so pervasive 
over the particularly over the uh, uh, modern times. Yep, that's really well said. And so I'm excited. I know you're excited uh, to get to the interview and we're confident uh, that our listeners are going to enjoy uh, our talk with Professor Priya Satya. Well, we are absolutely delighted today to have on our program uh, a scholar whose work we have been absolutely delighted with over the last year uh, of our own history. We bring Professor Priya Satya from Stanford University to History Against the Grain to help us, I think, bring some much needed light to the way that history plays into uh, the events outside our window. Now, before we get to the, you know, the heart of our discussion, let me uh, give Professor Satya a formal introduction. She is the Raymond Sperance Professor of International History and Professor of History at Stanford University. She earned her higher degrees in history at UC Berkeley and the London School of Economics, uh, started her college career at Stanford in international relations, earning a bachelor's degree. Uh, she specializes in modern British and British Empire history, especially in the Middle East and South Asia, a cultural historian of the material and intellectual infrastructure of the modern world in the age of empire. Her prize-winning Empire of Guns, the violent making of the Industrial Revolution, debuted in 2018, and just this last year, as I say, uh, she authored Time's Monster, How History Makes History. Welcome to History Against the Grain, Priya Satya. Thank you so much for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. You know, from your Stanford uh, University webpage, uh, a blurb about uh, Time's Monster, your book that we've been uh, enthusing about now for the last uh, many months, uh, it reads that uh, Time's Monster focuses on the role of the modern historical imagination in the history of the British Empire, while also recovering alternative ethical visions embraced by anti-colonial thinkers. And I was struck, you know, right away upon, um, you know, reading the book very early on how you, in effect, lay your cards on, on the table, as it were. You, know, you use words that are you know, rather, I think, inherently personal to you, like epiphany to describe the process, right, that led you into the writing of this book. Um, and so, you know, I want to read just a quick uh, little blurb from that, that opening chapter. You say, quote, from my earliest engagement with the discipline, I have grappled inarticulately with the feeling that it was somehow deeply implicated in the colonial history that had shaped me and that I sought to understand. Through my work as a historian over the last 20 odd years, I've been finally able to articulate in this book. Uh, and that, again, for me was, you know, was, was really pretty extraordinary because you were doing, I guess, what they call on TV sometimes, you know, breaking the fourth wall. You were <laughs> revealing yourself to your reading audience as the author who was engaged in her own process of, of discovery. So, 
You know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that process, about what that journey was for you and and why you wanted to confront it so straightforwardly in, in writing Time's Monster. Sure. Uh, thank you uh, for the question. I, I guess I hadn't realized... Um, it was so natural to me to just to, to just explain, you know, where I was coming from in the book. But I can see how that that may be unusual. But I, you know, I joined graduate school in in history, you know, in the nineties, um, and you know, at that time, it was there were certain standard sort of paradigms um, with which you know we thought about history, and and the assumption was that it's a story of progress and development, and there are certain measures of development that every place, any place in the world can at some point meet, right? So there's a kind of universalist um, a set of assumptions behind this idea of progress. But, and I always kind of felt that, but this was the same mentality that also um, underwrote uh, colonialism itself, which was the subject I was trying to study historically, you know, where the British or the French mm-hmm. say, we're here to put these places, other places in the world on a path to development and progress that's going to make them uh, evolve in the same way as European um, countries have. And so there was sort of a disturbance in that for me from the beginning. And right at that time, you know, in 2000, uh, Dipesh Chakraborty wrote a book called um, Provincializing Europe in which, you know, he talks about the, the, the problem of that um, assumption of progress, which is there whether you have a kind of Marxist view of history or you have the kind of more... Uh, liberal view of history, um, and, and that you know, there's no way for um, non-European or non-United non States, not the West, you know, other parts of the world, to not look like they are missing something, that they lack the right um, kind of working class, or they lack the right kind of state institutions, that there's some issue of lack. So that was really satisfying, um, you know, reading that work uh, when I was still in graduate school, but. It, it took me all this time, you know, until <laughs> I wrote Time's Monster to figure out um, how I could I could actually trace a story of hist- historians or people really wedded to a cert- certain notions of history in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, actually thinking that way in making practical decisions about empire. And, you know, the era, you know, in the 1990s were not exactly post-imperial. I know we, we've obviously there was a formal process of decolonization in the 1950s and 60s, but, you know, we were not, we still aren't at the end of empire. And that's why those ways of thinking are so sticky. And I was trying to sort of imagine a way outside those ways of thinking. And, it, you know, it's taken me some time to kind of get there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, I appreciate that. And in fact, I, I should probably come clean because, you know, here I am suggesting that this was a you know, a, a kind of personal crossroads for you, but maybe I should just say it was, it was that for me, reading your book, uh, you know, for, for more than 30 years. And, and I realize you write a book, right? And it's sort of out of your control, right? Mm-hmm. After that, you know, but mm-hmm. so I'm reading this book, you know, and, and after 30 years of teaching, among other things, the U.S. National History Survey, you know, I'd, I'd arrived home one night and, and, and told my wife after teaching, you know, that I should be sued for malpractice or something because I felt like I'd been doing the work of this imperial system all mm. these years, even as I imagined myself being a critic often of what that narrative had to say. Nevertheless, the narrative was the narrative. And so when you, I guess, uh, Priya, I would call it, you, you kind of went meta-historical in this book because you said, I, I don't want to just look at only what the narrative says 
I want to understand how the narrative itself was constructed by those involved with the process of empire building. And so from the very beginning, you saw these, this, this process you know, of, of writing history as being implicated uh, you know, in that. And I'm not sure that's how you know, people always think of, of history. I mean, you know, outside the academy or, or what happened, you know, popular histories that, that you know, seem to just narrate according to some kind of what, you know, omniscient narrator perspective or something. But you're saying, well, look, you know, we're never going to get out of this hole we're in, you know, unless we understand how those narratives were themselves, uh, you know, how they got constructed, how, how those narratives, as the subtitle of your book says, how those histories help to make the history themselves. And so this idea of, of you know, the role of historical thinking in, in empire building, I think, is so absolutely you know, needed at this moment, as I say, this kind of crossroads where, where we find ourselves. Now, you picked a figure who had been part of your previous book uh, and, and revisited him in Times Monsters. That's um, an Englishman by the name of Samuel Galton, who we've actually talked about after having read your work, talked about Galton, the Quaker gunmaker, you know, in, in England uh, at the turn of the 19th century. Maybe that's a good way to get into, you know, some of the, the content, right, of your work. Who, for our listeners again, who was Samuel Galton and, and how did his story end up informing your thinking uh, or even what you called your epiphany? Yeah, sure. I'm, I, I love to tell that story. Before I do, though, I just want to respond to what you just said. I mean, first of all, it's just it's really wonderful to, to find out that my book, uh, you found the book helpful that way. Um, thank you. That kind of Very made my day. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just to kind of express that, you know, the frustration you felt, the malpractice feeling you felt like resonates mm -hmm. so well, because I feel like the, as the furthest we could get in kind of critiquing history, acknowledging, uh, acknowledging um, the losses that are part of the kind of default narrative of progress that we're trained to tell is that they're winners and losers. Like that's as, as good as it got. And I think what happened was that, you know, with the pressure of, I think the climate crisis, especially for me personally, sort of it, it's creating a situation in, in which we're forced to think of alternatives, alternative ethics, alternative ways of um, being in the world and coexisting with the world mm -hmm. and and it's when you start to recover alternatives or imagine that there are alternatives that you can finally see that the way you've been thinking the default way we've been that's you know been inculcated in us since our school days is a particular way of thinking that's not necessarily natural but that's historically produced itself and then you know I went back and saw where when and where it was produced in the 18th mm -hmm. century in in Europe and and in the North American colonies, um, and so that actually takes us. That's a good segue to to the moment that you're talking about, which is the late 18th century, early 19th century, when um, and and the story of Samuel Galton. So you know, I I wrote this book about the Industrial Revolution in England. Um, you know, with Samuel Galton as my protagonist because. He was this uh, the most important um, firearms manufacturer in England in that time, and he was a Quaker. And in the course of defending himself to his fellow Quakers, you know, for Quakers participating in wars very much against principle, so he had to explain himself. 
And, and he said, well, you know, this is a time, the economy that I'm working in here in, in Birmingham, in England, is, is all d- directed towards supporting our government's wars, which are, you know, ongoing. And Britain was almost always at war in the 18th century. And so in my previous book, I was very struck by that. And I thought, well, what if he was right? What if, um, in fact, the industrial economy in the West Midlands in England was driven by war? No one has ever explained the Industrial Revolution that way. And I, I set out to sort of test whether he was right or he was just, you know, rationalizing and making up stuff to, to look good to his fellow Quakers. And I eventually was convinced that he was right. And that was the book I wrote in 2018 called Empire of Guns. But then I kept thinking about Galton and, um, you know, the particular wording, um, you know, when he was kind of making excuses for himself. And he said, and this is not an exact quote, but basically that his hands were tied because of the moment, because of the situation in which providence had placed them. And this word providence um, just stayed with me. And I realized, you know, Galton was not only an industrialist, he was also an enlightened figure, um, as were many major uh, industrialists in Birmingham at that time. Mm-hmm. And so he was in conversation with other scientists, historians of science, philosophers, moral philosophers, who would all gather together, you know, and um, in these spaces of enlightenment discussion. And I realized that he was basically, this was a line of the time. You know, there were lots of people saying things like this in the late 18th century, um, and when they were developing this idea, a new idea of history being something that's providentially guided and that um, you have to have faith that it's, um, that providence or so, the divine hand basically is guiding its unfolding and that it's going to turn out well and it's going to be a story of progress. And that means that sometimes things that you're morally uncomfortable with, say as a Quaker, you know, or as a Christian, um, you just have to have faith that in time it will be vindicated because you know at the end of the day God's hand is behind everything. So there are sometimes going to be necessary evils that you make your peace with. This is a very different and very new idea of history that emerges in the middle of the 18th century and it was Galton and his circles in Birmingham that sort of led me to it because he was friends with this philosopher Joseph Priestley who wrote a, a book called on the lectures called Lectures on History in which he, he you know explicitly spells all this out and quotes other philosophers of the same time period who are saying similar things so you have you know, Lord Bolingbroke saying this, you have Immanuel Kant saying this, you have Adam Smith saying this, you have Leibniz, and, you know, lots of 18th century philosophers, continental, American, British. And so there's a new kind of culture of history that emerges at that time, and that's also the time in which imperial conquest is really taking off. And so those two things go together, the one supports the other. Like, that philosophy of history is needed to justify the imperial conquest that's going on because because people actually are uncomfortable with it morally, but they have recourse to these ideas. Um, and, and so they really go together from that point, from the 18th century on. So, so it's a remarkable paradox, Priya, I think you set out to resolve. That is how you can get a, a Quaker, which after all the Quakers as a, as a sect are known for what? Their pacifism, among other things. How you get a Quaker arms maker, right? Someone who's actually fueling this, this, uh, you know, war industry hmm. in England. And, and what you find is, among other things, what you call conscience management, 
right? That, the, that, that there's a lot of what you call conscience management going along. How, maybe you can kind of frame that for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, what I mean, so what I, what I argue in this book is that under, you know, the project of empire for the British, and I'm sure you could tell analogous stories for other colonial powers in this period, involved a lot of conscience management. Um, there was a lot of guilt all the time in the, <laughs> in the period in which the British were conquering and um, ruling different parts of the world. Um, you see testimony of that in, like, I mean, think of the whole romantic movement is about guilt, um, whether it's guilt about industrialism or guilt about progress or guilt about um, the harm to nature or guilt about empire. I mean, there's just a lot of awareness that the kind of progress that they claim to be making in their time um, through political revolution, through industrial revolution, through colonial conquest is coming with a, with a heavy cost. And that it's involving destruction, that it's involving loss of life, displacement, and so on. And people are worried about it. Um, you know, it, the British don't do empire because they're uniquely villainous people. They are people of conscience like anyone else. The difference is that they have a new set of ideas that can help manage their guilty conscience in this period. And that's where history becomes really useful. And by history, I mean a particular vision of history with, that's grounded in an assumption that there may be unpleasantness now, but time is going to vindicate all this these things that are making us uncomfortable in the moment. Um, and we just need to have faith. Um, so it's a worldly but not secular uh, view of history. And it, it's, and, and at the same time, there, you know, the whole branch of um, enlightenment thought that's known as moral philosophy in this period is, is all about instructing um, this, these, this generation of Britons and a certain class of male Britons to, in how to... Um, be stoic, be stoical and kind of have a stiff upper lip and be phlegmatic and you know, which means that they're recognizing that they have internal qualms, but that those qualms need to be sort of suppressed and papered over. Um, and, and that's what it means to be civilized. And, um, and that's how you're gonna be able to endure um, what's going on and how you're gonna be able to participate and even further um, all those projects, whether it's industrialism or the creation of a commercial economy or the or the creation of empire uh, i've got like a million things i want to say right now but I w i'll start by saying my own nice <laughs> things you. about you because chris got his chance uh this book hit me hit me in such a particular place uh because it crystallized a lot of things i've been thinking about recently but also over a longer term uh, my own dissertation <laughs> was actually about spanish empire dealing with some of these same issues uh in the 16th century um, and their own attempt to narrate their empire in a way that would make sense of it and morally justify it. And then, you know, also just politically legitimate it. And I made the case that it, it, they never succeeded in doing that. When I hear about, you know, this, this historical consciousness that's developing post-enlightenment, the first thing that strikes me is it's, it's, it's perfect. And I don't mean perfect as in good, I mean perfect as in it, it solves so many problems uh, as it relates to empire and imperial legitimacy and uh, and this morality, these immorality issues as, as well. It's this kind of perfect uh, thing. And one of the reasons it's perfect, I think, is because as you're kind of suggesting, it's so adaptable to so many different circumstances, such that if you do good things, it's because you're a good person. But if you do bad things, it's because, well, it doesn't matter because it's all leading to the right direction anyway. Um, and so for me, it was just so, uh, 
in, enlightening to, to kind of make sense of this world in a way that I, I think the Spanish could never quite make sense of their own world. Um, going back to, to Chakrabarty, because that, that part where you're talking about Chakrabarty early in the book is, is so, uh, was so fascinating to me. You pull an anecdote from his book, Provincializing Europe, about Santal rebels, uh, or a particular Santal rebel that he talks about. Um, and this rebel attributed his agency, his historical agency, to the god Thakur. So the god Thakur, you know, as Chakrabarty, right. or maybe it's you says this, was whispering in his ear. And this gets in this, yeah, this gets in this, this really interesting issue because on the one hand, you know, we are these contemporary historians and we want to try to, you know, broaden the historical field. So it's not just about, you know, telling the stories of white men. But then we get to figures like this Santal rebel. And as we try to understand him, we get to this, this issue that his agency is coming from this thing that I think most of us don't believe in, right? We don't really believe that the god Santal, uh, Th- Thakur is, is whispering in his ear. And so it raises this question that, you know, on the one hand, we want to be aware of the difficulties of, of uh, or the need rather, to, to include more voices, to hear different people. On the other hand, I think the discipline of history itself makes, us hard, make, makes it hard for us to kind of understand somebody like this Santal rebel, whose agency comes from a, 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 a direction that we don't quite recognize. You know, I think in my own classes, I've probably uh, chuckled about like the, the boxer rebels, you know, saying they have amulets that protect them from gunfire or something like that. But at a certain point, there's this problem that it's one thing to, to, to add more voices to the conversation, add more voices to our stories. But if we're just going to add those voices just so we can intercede to assure, you know, our readers or our students or our, our listeners that the god Thakur wasn't actually speaking to this guy, then are we really, you know, um, bringing new voices and bringing out those alternatives that you talked about to the fore? Or are we just kind of doing the same old history and talking about different people as we do that history? Yeah. Um no, I, I, yeah. I was also really fascinated by that story, or the problem posed by a historical actor who says, who explains his agency, basically, uh, by reference to a divine force. And, you know, in, his, in the secular right. discipline of history, we don't know what to do, typically, with, with divine beings or other wealthy beings. Right. So, yeah. But, you know, medievalists deal with this all the time. Like, we, we, we expect people in the Middle Ages, whether in Europe or wherever in the world, to sort of reference God and say in their motives or spirits or witches yeah. or whatever. And we just sort of treat it kind of anthropologically and you don't have to sort of assess yeah. whether it's true or not. But for me, what was even more interesting is that we think that when the Santal explains his agency by reference to God, that God, that that's a, something different. And when we don't realize that when, um, when um, Winston Churchill explains his agency by saying, yeah. I, this yeah. is my, his, I, I owe this, I'm doing this, you know, history is telling me to do this. Um, we don't right. realize that that is as uh, much about um, a, a belief system, right, as what the Sandal is yes. saying. And so I think that's what I wanted to sort of make, um, make that kind of default way of thinking, because mm-hmm. Churchill's way is much more familiar to us. And I mean, he's so influential that part of the reason it's so familiar is because mm-hmm. we emulate him you know um yeah so i mean he spread that way of thinking too and and just sort of so shed you know illuminate that as just it's another way of invoking um an explanation for your action and it's no more real or unreal in a sense than than what the the santal rebel in the 1850s is saying when he's saying a god told him to do something the nation is no more 
you know, there's as much a myth as God is, right? In that sense. Yeah. Yes, right? it is, yeah. 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 And you have that great line, historical think. You say historical thinking is like the God whispering into the Santal's San ear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which, you know, is, it's so important to think about because, as you said, we have this default idea that, like, the way we think is rational and it's secular and it's it's empirical and this kind of thing. And then people in the past are are not yeah. like that, right? That everything is the opposite. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Have you heard the, the, this? There's this uh, Indian poet, uh, Urdu uh, poet in 19th century India named Akbar Ilahabadi. Ila, Ila yes. Heard of, have you run yes. across him? Okay, so he's got this line that I, as soon as I saw it, it just, it stuck with me. He says, uh, it's a, in a poem, he says, you never cease proclaiming that Islam spread by the sword. You have not deigned to tell us what it is the gun has spread. Mm. And it just, it just hit me so, just right, right in the face when I saw it, because there's that assumption that, you know, the British are coming with a set of just rational ideas, mm. right? They got law and they got order and they've got uh, rationality behind them. Um, but the reality is, as, as Akbar Ilahabadi is, is suggesting, that there's ideology behind what they're doing just as much as there was, you know, during the early spread of, of Islam as well. And uh, so I, I think it's just so important to, to understand that is not a default, that this is, as you said, an historically constructed set of ideas that we as historians and as teachers and, and writers always need to be telling our students and our listeners and our readers that this, this is something that was constructed and, and part of what we need to do maybe is is deconstruct that uh, to build something better in its place a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And and what's also helpful there is that people in, you know, like the 19th century, let's say Winston Churchill when he was in the Sudan or in Afghanistan, yeah. um, they were very open about saying, yeah, we're spreading um, history and progress with the gun. That They, they mm -hmm. had no problem admitting that. We, we yeah. have more of a, I mean, sort of whitewashing um, impulse than, than they did at the time. And, and, and by saying they're spreading history and progress, I mean, that might look spec uh, secular at first glance, but when you go back to sort of, and in some ways it had become a kind of secularized idea by then, but its origins were not at all secular. They were all about figuring out right. why God tolerates, allows evil in the world, right? It was a theodicy, yeah. right? And the, and the way you answer that, or the way these 18th century philosophers answered it was by saying, well, because there's this kind of dialectic way in which evil eventually produces good. And we just have to wait for enough yeah. time to pass to know it. So it's, it's not even actually in its origins a secular idea. And it, it sort of adapts the eschatology of, um, you know, Abrahamic religious belief. And, you know, and, and we forget that by the time you get to the 20th century, and we just think, Progress yeah, right, right. is progress. Progress is history, mm -hmm. and history is progress. Uh, yeah, you 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 upend the old the old question: Why do bad things happen to good people? But your question is essentially, the, you know, I would argue one of the central questions of the book is why good people do bad things, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's, as we've talked about, part of the answer is because they develop this very particular historical sensibility that that allows them to to take good or bad things and make it all part of this broader either either you know God's plan or this more secular progressive plan. But it's all. It's it's all uh, providence, right? That that's leading us yeah. in, in that direction. Yeah, they let those ideas um, talk them out of what they know through their more transcendent moral um, compass to be <laughs> wrong. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. We've yeah. all done it. Right. <laughs> We've all yeah. done it. Yeah. That's why we have diaries where um, we and, confess. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and and going going back to Samuel Galton and, and Chris, I'll, you can take the next question here. But but going back to Samuel Galton, I mean, part of his argument for, you know, when the when the Quakers, uh, you know, want to censure him, he says, well, we're all complicit in this thing, right? That this this involves we're all doing something that that's part of this war machine. Mm -hmm. 
So why am I more guilty than than you? And I mean, in many ways, that's the the central issue of the you know contemporary global capitalist world is that this is this is the this is what we all use to to shield ourselves from from complicity is that well we're all part of the same system so yeah. um, what can we do about it anyway right yeah. it's, it's 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 like this you know 18th century thing but you can it's so much alive still in this in this uh, contemporary world absolutely the help that feeling of helplessness before history yes. and before something systemic. Um, yeah, I think you can definitely see the origins of that in the 18th century. Well, let's see, Josh, because I was thinking, you know, uh, bringing an alibi in the, um, you know, that we were thinking, because I had read somewhere else, too, Priya, about you being inspired by the work of Urdu poets. Um, are we are we ready to go there, Josh, or do you want to mm -hmm. drill down some more into mm -hmm. uh, the Brits and, and Galton and such? Yeah, I actually do want to talk about, you know, the, the transition from kind of that liberal imperialism of the first half of the 19th century to the, the later 19th century as, as kind of hardline racism becomes more hardline and you get the social Darwinism as well. Uh, because it, at, at that point, the, the rhetoric about empire shifts, right? Um, you know, so you, you talk about the fact that in the first part of the 19th century, when people wrote about empire, it was like a form of atonement, right? That, that, that they have this empire, but they're not particularly... Uh, they don't feel great about it. Um, they don't feel great about how it happened, but it's here and we've got to, we've got to deal with it. Even critics of empire don't suggest the empire should go away. Uh, and then you get to the later 19th century and you, you know, you mentioned Churchill earlier, just saying outright that, you know, the empire is founded on, on, on guns and this sort of thing. But you, you also quote um, in the book, this, this, uh, this guy, James Fitzpatrick Stephen. James Fitzjames, um, James, James Stephen. I know his Fitz James, yeah. oh my God! I, yeah, I trip up on his name all the time. Actually, that's too many first names. That's too many first names yeah. in one name. I think that's the problem. Um, so, so he's writing at, at the time in in the 1870s when when India is going through this transition. I would say from I think the position that the goal of empire is to essentially turn Indians into Englishmen, right? And that's you know going back to, to Macaulay and his idea of. You know, we're going to uh, Indians uh, are they're still going to be Indian in color, but they're going to be Brits in taste, opinions, morals and, and all these other things. Right. So so the idea of empire is that these poor people living in this oriental despotism, we're going to lift them out of that and turn them essentially into us. And that's that's how you atone for the, the problems of empire in the past. Mm -hmm. But then you get to James Fitzjames, mm -hmm. Stephen, to be clear. And and he's writing in the 1870s at a time in which, you know, this racial rhetoric has become much more heated. And he says, quote, no anomaly can be more striking or so dangerous as its, as its administration by men who being at the head of a government founded on conquest, implying at every point the superiority of the conquering race of their ideas, their institutions, shrink from the open, uncompromising assertion of, uh, of it and seek to apologize for their own position. He's almost responding to these mm -hmm. early 19th century guys who are, who are uncomfortable with, with their empire mm -hmm. and saying, no, no, you need to be proud of it. You need to be open about it. You need to understand that this represents supremacy. It's a huge shift, but what I'm wondering is, as much as it's a shift in rhetoric, what does this actually mean for the running of the empire? You know, so in other words, do Indians experience this as, as a shift? Um, or is it just a, a different way of thinking about the empire, more of that? Because even this, it, as harsh as it is, it's its own conscious management as well, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's bad stuff has to happen, but it's all for the purpose of eventually making something better. Um, but I guess the question is, I'm trying to, trying to connect how much these ideas affect the realities on the ground 
in empire. Would, would you say that, you know, by the time we get to the 1870s and you have this kind of, these kind of statements being made, that this has material effects on the way the empires actually run? Definitely. Um, so I, I'll just mention two. Number one is that um, yeah. at this point, um, because the British have a much more pessimistic um, sense of whether they can turn Indians into Englishmen, um, yeah. instead of annexing uh, new Indian territory outright, what they do is they um, allow the local monarch, the which they sort of demote as a prince, but it's a, really a local king, um, yeah. to continue to rule that that territory. And then the British are ruling kind of behind the scenes. So it's called indirect rule. Yeah. And that's the origins of what's known as princely India. So there were hundreds of these um, states, uh, Indian states, that are interspersed with the areas of India that the British ruled directly. Um, and some are big and some are tiny. Um, and in those territories, with the new uh, kind of pessimism about turning Indians into Englishmen, um, the British have a much more kind of anthropological than historical approach to them, where they're saying, we're not yeah. here to change anything. These people are hopeless. So this is going to be like a museum piece. Uh, we'll just keep the old conservative uh, social forces in power. They will answer to us. And what we the last thing we want to do is change anything. So they almost like don't want history yeah. to come to those places and work against any internal dynamism that might exist. Like, you know, if, if people living there might actually wanted to have changed something and uh, that becomes harder to do um, in this new setup. So that's one thing. And the second thing is by the time you get to the second half of the 19th century, um, you know, all the globalization has become um, stronger, right? Like the forces of that and world markets are much more integrated and the impact of, um, you know, uh, booms and busts are felt much more immediately and all over mm -hmm. the world. And so there are these series of massive, massive famines um, that create right. a lot of loss of life uh, all around the world, but also in India. And you can see the approach of this, you know, the, the influence of this new official mentality about, um, you know, uh, just uh, tolerating a lot of loss of life if necessary, because it, it's almost like it's an evolutionary need, you know, yeah. um, that they now expect. So when these famines happen and people are dying in large numbers, um, the British feel like, again, they need to keep like a stiff upper lip. And it's so unfortunate that despite their human, you know, feeling that something that they wish they could do something, they know that they can't because that would that would disrupt the forces of, of history, really. And so that, yeah. that kind of confidence in their might and the confidence that um, the story of progress might even uh, require the loss of large numbers of people and that, uh, you know, that, that sort of harsher version of, um, you know, uh, the official outlook towards, you know, what the story of progress is gonna be like. You do see definitely the impact of that and the way, um, India has managed, um, practically speaking. Those are just two examples, but you can right. definitely find more. That really um, answered that yeah, really well. I, that all these, all these costs are worth it because it's going to get somewhere. And I guess that's, you know, as harsh as, as the rhetoric was compared to the earlier period, I mean, ultimately, the story is pretty similar still, right? They don't want to turn in Indians into Englishmen still uh, anymore. But the idea still is this is all for a bigger purpose, uh, even if it's a little uglier in the way that it's, it's presented this, at this point, right? Yeah. 
Well, it's less about um, bringing progress to India and more about protecting the world and even Indians from what India would be like without the steadying mm-hmm. British hand. So it's like the lesser, very much a lesser evil. So that, you know, the first half of the 19th century, it's like we're here, we're shepherding India along this path yeah. of progress. In the second half of the century, it's like, well, Indians can't do that. They, they're incapable of progress. But if we leave, it will be even right. worse. They will create, there will be anarchy in India and that will be bad for Indians and be bad for the whole region and be bad for the whole world. So we're going to stay here in local parentis. This is a totally selfless duty we're taking on on behalf of the entire world. Right. You know, and, and Indians <laughs> benefit from this, but we don't. Which again, that's the yeah. British perspective. And, and again, I mean, that just shows how... <laughs> yeah. how um, adaptable that that progressive narrative is it can be nicer it can be meaner but mm-hmm. ultimately you know even you mentioned at one point um yeah. cecil rhodes and his uh it's a confession of faith but but even that idea like that 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 idea strikes us as as horrific it's basically like eliminationist genocidal but even for for rhodes mm-hmm. the idea is presented as if well we're just trying to make the world a better place it just so happens that the anglo-saxons mm-hmm. are the greatest people in the world so if there's more of us that's better for everybody right um and so yeah. it's you know yeah. the, the the most horrific ideas some charitable ideas, the whole spectrum mm-hmm. all fits into this nar- the same narrative, which, which again, you know, as I was saying right at the beginning, it's, it's, it's a testament to how powerful these ideas were, is that it, it can take anything and make sense of it and moralize and manage the conscience of, of people no matter what they're doing. And I think, you know, to, to large, it really helps explain a lot of the 20th century in many ways and the horrors of the 20th century, because if you can moralize, you know, famine in India, for instance, then there's not much else that that is not going to be able to be moralized in, in the end, right? Absolutely, and and just the the I think a measure of the kind of hegemonic power of this idea of yeah. progress is that if you if you want to criticize what you just described, the Rhodes version of this, the like starkest, harshest, yeah. um, you know, people are going to die version of this, then you'll opt yeah. for either maybe a Marxist critique, which is still going to be a story of progress, that still is going to uh, necessitate uh, destruction, or you're going to go for the milder John Stuart Mill version, which is, no, no, we should be here in a, in a kind of nurturing capacity, and it's, we are in a civilizing capacity. But there's no one talking out in the British context, at least there are very few who talk outside this progress paradigm. And so you really have to look at yes. sort of anti-colonial intellectual history to find that Wow, there are lots of philosophies and lots of people talking um, that, that that don't think that our life on this planet is going to be a story of progress or that it needs to be a story of progress. That there are other ways to find meaning uh, in worldly life without having to believe that it must be a story of progress. Well, that's actually a, a great yes. um, transition to what, what I wanted to ask you about. And you know what, uh, Priya, sometimes I think our guests must feel like they're on a dance card with two different dance partners. You know, Josh wants to do jitterbug and I'm trying to waltz or something. Or maybe it's the other way around. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so I hope it's not too uh, yeah. you know, stark. But uh, drawing you, uh, or leading, I guess, no, with no, the dance fine. metaphor, you know, I'm trying to lead you back to a, a kind of this meta-historical understanding of where we are. Uh, one of the many golden lines, what I call golden lines, in this fabulous book of yours, uh, uh, says, uh, history itself underwriting endless mayhem hmm. and <laughs> that word underwriting was uh, brilliant by the way because instead of just saying you know sort of history 
witness. We always like to think of history as some sort of witness to these things. You're saying it's underwriting these things, you know. Mm -hmm. It has a part to play. It's implicated, etc. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, what I want to ask you then, uh, given your own willingness to write in the book about some of your own inspirations, you know, intellectual, uh, philosophical, cultural, artistic, literary, etc., uh, you know, what, what's our way out here, by the way, in the second, uh, just to, to bring you up to speed, the second year of History Against the Grain, our podcast, we're committed not just to taking the systems apart. That was really very much the case in year one. But in year two, especially for our, the teachers in our audience, we're trying to figure out ways to create new narratives, you know, that you can take to your classroom and say, yeah, we mm -hmm. don't want it. We don't want that narrative anymore. And, and here's where we can go. And so. Heck, you know, if I can get you to maybe expand on this a little bit with, in terms of your own inspirations, what is our way out of this narrative trap that our, you know, our history forebears have, have created for us, this sovereignty trap, this empire yeah. trap of history? How do, you, how, do you find, how do you find your way out? So I think we do need yeah. still to have utopic ideas. Like you, you have to believe that it's possible to have more mm -hmm. freedom than what we have now right, or more equity than what we have now, more brotherhood than what we mm -hmm. have now, this is the French Revolution fireworks, right? I mean, you still need those ideas, but what, you, what, what we want to let go of, I think, is the idea that you only get those things when you arrive there, and that then on the way there, that means you can justify any manner of yeah. destruction or violence in the name of getting there. So rather, I think what you can, the ideas you can borrow from some of these anti-colonial thinkers is that those are motivating ideas, equality, freedom, brotherhood, but um, it's in the struggle towards them that you actually get to experience mm. them. So the ends and means are the same. And I think it's it's a little um, subtle, it's a little more complicated than the, you know, that they're, than the idea that they are a destination. It's saying that the journey is the destination too so you're supposed to struggle towards these things but the way you remain ethically but you have to be ethically accountable in the present all the time as you go so then that means you're not going to say well i'll do this terrible thing because it's going to have a good payoff in the future you say well i'm i'm going to instead you know work with these other people who um, i also care about and who are interested in the same things as i am and um, we will from moment to moment struggle and we may never get there but it, in the struggling towards it, we will experience what we can actually call, yeah. you know, freedom, mm -hmm. equity, mm -hmm. and brotherhood. Like that's where it is. There is no, it's nowhere else. It's not in the future. It's in what you're doing now together. Um, and that sounds, you know, when you say it out loud, it sounds, you know, very utopic. It sounds, but actually, you know, when you think about any mass movement, if you think about Black Lives Matter, if you think about civil rights movement in this country or the Gandhian movement or mm -hmm. uh, even the non-Gandhian anti-colonial movements in India, um, that's what people were actually doing. If you think about labor movements in, you know, the late 18th century in England um, and the forms of protest and um you know, uh, collective struggle that people were engaged in. They didn't think those were going to work and that their world would be completely different, but they had no other alternative but to push back against oppression. Yeah. Like, that's the only option you have, right? Uh, without worrying so much about the end. Because sometimes when you worry about the end, you talk yourself out of doing anything. Because it's like, like what we were saying earlier, yeah. we're so complicit, we're helpless, we can't do anything. But if you think of it being... 
such an individuated experience, that's where the fault lies. But when you think of it as a collective thing, that's where the strength comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the road to renewal and, it, you know, we, we have to have a different sense of time being, you know, in history being something that's much more immediate uh, mm-hmm. rather than something we're always moving towards. And, um, and I think one thing we can also do now is deal with the past that is behind us in a much more constructive way. And that also helps make a new kind of present and new kind of future possible. And I think also we can look back in that past as I'm, you know, in what I'm saying right now, I'm doing like by looking at what anti-colonial thinkers said or what romantic thinkers said and find those alternative visions of, um, you know, what's the purpose of history and what's the story of history? Is it about progress and reaching a point of civilization that's in the future? Or is it the way you act right now and you sort of transcending the limits, the kind of darker <laughs> limits of what it means to be human and actually being civilized right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Gandhi would say. That's beautiful. And I, I, you know, you said it sounds utopic, but I think it, it actually has the benefit of sounding realistic, right? Oh, it sounds, you know, because it's not about some, you know, eschatological end or something like that, some perfection of liberty. It's about creating the world you want to live in mm-hmm. right now, right? Yeah. And you can do that in small ways, you can do that in large ways, but I think um, it's it's a really beautiful and powerful message. You know, I, I, I do want to ask, though, within history itself, as, as practitioners of this historical discipline, mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, part of the, part of the problem is that yeah. we are, you know, it's one thing as, as we're doing here to recognize you know, as, as you wrote, dis- the discipline's complicity in empire, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a, it's a huge first step. The, the, the thing I was thinking about right before we started here, though, was in many ways, then the tools we have to fix the problem, right? To, to eradicate the, uh, the legacy of empire in, in the way we do history. The tools we have to do it are the tools of the discipline that is complicit in empire, mm-hmm. right? So I was, I was saying to Chris before, it's almost like, you know, the discipline, his, the historical discipline has given us a bunch of shovels. Yeah. Um, and so the way we try to fix it is just, we just keep digging and digging and digging. Yeah. Um, so you know you, you were you were just I think commenting on what we can do as 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 people, but as historians, what's a way that we can really yeah. get outside yeah. that complicity? You know, if, yeah. if, given the fact that the tools we have are the tools of yeah. of the the power structures. Absolutely, ways, right? but the tools have changed, right? Like so so yeah. you know even if you go to like the middle of the nineteenth century after the first Anglo-Afghan War, um, there was like the official version of events because that was a, a horrible humiliation for the British, and then. Um, there's a lot of controversy about the decision to, to go to war and how, how it was fought and so on. And then this guy, John Kay, um, says, well, I'm going to do tell the story of this war by talking to unofficial sources. I'm going to look at the personal and private papers of people who are involved. And there was a huge, you know, claim, he was claiming like a huge novelty in doing history that way. I mean, he thought he was doing like history against the grain, you know. And so that was, <laughs> that was like an innovation for him. And then you have, you know, um, uh, colonized people writing history back to the empire, right? And which they're also finding mm-hmm. different sources and telling it from a different perspective. And you have E.P. Thompson's father, Edward Thompson, also like going to Indians and asking them their version of events and the and their rebellion in 1857. He's doing this like in the 1920s. And then E.P. Thompson and historians of his generation are introducing all kinds of new tools too. Like let's use song from the 18th century to get at the the intellectual and emotional life of working class people. Um, why do we only have to use the archival record? And then you have subaltern studies people who are saying, let's mm-hmm. read the official archive against the grain. You know, so then we have oral history. Mm-hmm. So that our tools keep expanding. 
it's it's not that we're stuck with always the same tools. And then there are new realms in which historians can make their voices um, relevant that, um, right. you know, we, we can create more of a role for ourselves. And I think you see this happening right now in conversations about the past that shape our political debates right now, like whether it's reparations or memorialization or mm -hmm. museum collections or statues or what have you. There's so many ways in which we need the voices of historians with the shovels and tools they already have, however yeah, right, inadequate right. they are, but where we could be like, um, you know, uh, much more, we, we, we have a very central role to play in those conversations. So it's the, the array of tools we have and then the range of spaces in which we can speak and those can multiply as well, right? So there's a lot of ways yeah, in which right. I think we can be useful and, and take history in a very different direction from, from the way it was in say, you know, um, James Fitzjames Stephen's time, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, you know, whatever yeah. it takes to quit underwriting, you know, that, that damage. Right. That that instead of being complicit, we are in some sense telling better, truer stories that instead of making us uh, sick, as we like to say, will make us healthier. Ultimately, listen, Priya Satya, thank you so much yeah. for lending us your time. Uh, what the heck, Josh? We are uh, big fans, aren't we? Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, I want to apologize for the gushing. That's where I want to start. But no, no, absolutely. <laughs> This was such a pleasure to have you on. I could probably talk to you for two more hours, but I will not subject you to that. Um, but thank you so much for, for being with us. Oh, you guys are so kind. Thank you. I'm, that's very, I'm so touched. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's lovely to speak to both of you and to feel like the, the, the kind of uh, shared concerns and uh, shared hopefulness. So thank you. Hey, now hold on. Is what we really, really want Or what we are taught All the greats have led paths of glory But look at them now Emaciated on the museum Well, listen, hey, uh, I, I had fun with that. How about you? Oh, such a blast! Um, I, as I said, I was I was worried we were maybe I was too gushing or, or something like that. But but you know, honestly, like I was saying in the intro, this just the book hit me in a very real place and and helped make sense of so much that I was kind of struggling with. So mm -hmm. um, if I was gushing, it was it was uh, genuine. Absolutely, um, you know, it came out of a real place. Our fanboy gushing this time, I think we yeah we yeah uh, we get that. A uh, couple of things, you know, as we uh, sort of you know, get our minds around this here for the outro segment is that, uh, well, one, you know, a phrase I mentioned uh, from, from, from the book, history itself underwriting endless mayhem. Uh, again, that, that's, isn't that, that's a very different take by a historian involved in the heavy lifting now, the intellectual heavy lifting of this big subject. Uh, because, you know, we get history as a witness, but she's saying, History is underwriting endless mayhem. And I know, I think the thing that, one of the many things that really struck me, uh, you know, was something that she said about, she had finished uh, Empire of Guns, right? Which was mm -hmm. this award-winning book that she uh, completed and it was published in 2018, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, 
But typically what happens, Josh, what you go on, if, if, you, if you're like Priya, you know, if you're a sort of working scholar, uh, you go on to the next project, right? You yes. figure, you know, in some, some sense your work is done. But she said that she couldn't put it down. I mean, she, the, particularly this, uh, this character, Samuel Galton, you know, as I call mm -hmm. him, the Quaker gunmaker, yeah. uh, that there was something unresolved in her mind. And that's after writing a whole award-winning book. And so she kept in to uh, sort of drill down into the central paradox she felt, you know, of, 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 of why, of how. Is it enough just to say with a kind of sweeping gesture, oh, these are all hypocrites, you know, men of power. And, and I know as professors, sometimes we have to deal with that, even where our students, you know, who are, are quick to make you know, maybe a snap judgment or something about an obvious contradiction. And we want them to see contradictions, but we understand too that these contradictions never resolve themselves quite that easy, easily. Often they don't. And so for her, the contradiction of Samuel Galton hadn't resolved itself. And she said she kept thinking about it and what became this kind of feverish bid to resolve it for herself in her own sort of personal sense you know, of, of ethical, moral conundrum, you know, with, with enormous consequences for England, for the empire, for the, you know, the peoples of the British Empire. She felt there had to be a better answer. And her better answer uh, was this book, Time's Monster. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, one of the ways I think that hits hardest is just that idea of conscience management, which conscience management, which mm -hmm. we talked about so much um you know and, and that idea why do you know flipping on its head the the old maxim why do uh why do good people do bad things and the answer you know as you suggested at the beginning is that history plays a really large role in that um and that you know as historians that should i don't know anger you but it it should wake you up a little bit right um wake you out of the complacency of of the idea that well, history is just, I'm going to go and I'm going to look at this specific thing. I'm going to pull some facts out. I'm going to put them together. And then here's this history, this story of the past. Mm -hmm. um, because what we tend to do when we see history in that simple way is, is we're just repeating the old mistakes of, of you know, this modern view of history that, that she's talking about in, in the book. Um, so mm -hmm. I think we need to be careful about the stories we tell. We need to be careful about whose voices we're, we're allowing in, whose voices we're keeping out. And we need to be careful about the assumptions that go into that, those stories as well, um, so that it's not continuing to, uh, to 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 serve the power structure, serve um, uh, you know certain interest in in particular ways. Yeah, I've been thinking lately about that model. You know, we we inherited as practitioners of the craft as we went through graduate school um, this this tradition that, as she describes in Times Monster, you know, in England at least was sort of coalescing around people like Joseph Priestley and mm -hmm. these kind of Enlightenment era thinkers, late 18th century thinkers in England, you know, so very bright, very creative uh, individuals who, you know, along with others and on the continent and, and eventually in, you know, North America and elsewhere are creating what is essentially the seabed for modern written history, including the methodology and the guiding assumptions. And I've been thinking about that lately, you know, how coming out of the Enlightenment, this kind of empirical tradition, what I sometimes call the data argument model. You know, your mm -hmm. job as a historian is to collect the data and from that data craft an argument 
uh, uh, about some facet of, of the past. And it's easy enough to do, you know, I mean, in the same way, in other words, as, as a courtroom advocate might a lawyer, you know, might uh, marshal some evidence and make an argument for a client. But is that really, you know, what we want to be doing right now? Because that tradition has clothed itself in a kind of, what, immutability, a kind of transcendence. It likes to sort of rub up against claims of scientific rationality and that kind of thing. And I'm not suggesting that we, you know, that we, we, we ditch empiricism necessarily or that we quit making hypotheses. But I think we have to understand, as her book suggests and as, as others are doing now, that sometimes when we imagine ourselves as collecting data and, and offering a hypothesis that sort of conforms in some kind of what one-to-one -one way to the reality of the historical past, you know, what we're really doing is telling a story that we've inherited, the implotment of, of which, the story frame of which has already essentially been created. And so if you're writing about empire, if you're writing about nation states, etc., you're working within those narrative frameworks. And even if you feel edgy, even if you're feeling like Han Solo, you know, and you want to you know, you want to upend something. At the end of the day, you're stuck with that same, that methodology, that same data argument process, that same, uh, you know, imperial slash nation state slash uh, enlightenment framework. And so for me, at least, you know, her call really is a pretty profound call for historians to examine the very assumptions and the very presumptions uh, of 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 the discipline in which they've been trained. Yeah, that's that's so well said. And and you know what it makes me think about is just this idea that, you know, what, what often happens these kind of quote unquote historical debates are are debates about particular facts, or maybe even particular interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, but the debate is all happening within the same basic narrative structure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so you know while it seems like these are these are major issues, major disputes, and this sort of thing, <laughs> whatever side you 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 choose whatever side you're more uh, sympathetic to, you're still just, you know, um, reifying the old narrative structures and, and, and really doing no damage to those narratives that, that support power, that support, um, you know, a certain group of, of elites. And so, you know, when we, when we think about historical narrative, it's really important, I think, not just to think in terms of disputing facts, uh, creating, you know, slightly different interpretations, but really trying to create counter narratives um, that that ditch a lot of the worst uh, baggage of those old narrative structures. Um, because again, if you don't, what you end up doing is legitimizing that narrative structure, which I think for a long, long time, that's what historians have, have been doing. I think, you know, this is something you've certainly seen in, in the field of U.S. history, but it's, it's a broader thing we see throughout the historical field that, you know, certain structures, as you say, certain plotments just get um, constantly legitimized, even in the context of what seems like actual debate. Well, that's why I love your analogy of the shovel, by the way. Yeah. You know, that, in other words, <clears throat> the system that, that trains us, right, which is, is right. part of the, uh, the historical, you know, uh, system, the, the graduate school university system that trained us to be historians is the one that's handing us the shovel uh, and telling us 
to dig. Now, you know, the, the old line about what, what do you do when you've dug yourself in a hole? You stop digging, right? Yeah. But but because the system handed us the shovel, all the digging we do ultimately is on behalf of that system. And we just dig ourselves into the deeper narrative hole right. of it. It's harder to get out, you know. Uh, and you had another great example, I thought, Josh, you know, when you said uh, to, to, to illustrate this, because otherwise it's so hard to see, you know, it's, it's fish not um, recognizing they're in water or something, yeah. you know, is that, uh, you know, when, when Joe Biden, who is seen now as a counterpoint to Donald Trump, who's going to somehow restore the liberal even handedness, the liberal sanity, you know, to the American political system following the, you know, the, the Trump debacle. Well, so when Joe Biden calls a historian, right, to counsel him, you know, on the big view of things, who does he call? He certainly doesn't call uh, Priyasetia. He calls <laughs> our old friend, a guy we haven't mentioned in a while. I, I feel like we haven't been uh, doing our, our due diligence on this guy. But John Meacham, uh, you know, the ultimate friend of, of liberal progressive history, I would, I would say. Yep. Um, and, you know, when you call John Meacham, you're going to get a very John Meacham response. And that's, of course, that's what Joe Biden wants to hear. Joe Biden wants to hear that he's restored the soul of America that things are on the right path and that history is just, and, and there was this recent uh, uh, review of, of Meacham's work in Harper's by, uh, by Thomas Frank. Mm -hmm. um, that is, uh, we couldn't have said it better ourselves. He actually read his book, which I guess we have to give him credit for. <laughs> Although our beefing with Meacham preceded uh, uh, Thomas Frank by, by a while. So let me just, just read a little bit from, uh, from Frank's review. He says of Meacham's view of history. So, there is good in America, Meacham tells us, and there is also bad. There, these are history's diagnostic categories. People in the past have done fine things, and they have done wicked things. It's the dialectic of history, imagined for a new Manichaean generation. Things that are good exist in eternal, ex, uh, eternal conflict with things that are bad. The imperative facing intellectuals, meanwhile, is to inform us that good things are good, and also to proclaim to the world that bad things are bad. So, you know, that's the Meacham view of history. And, and one that, I, again, I think is, is very pervasive, um, particularly in, in popular history. Right? And, and, you know, Meacham is basically a presidential biographer, you know, more than a historian. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing so, he's kind of reviving this great man history that has, you know, more or less fallen by the wayside. It's less pervasive than it, than it used to be. But as Frank points out, when you revive this great man history, you're also uh, allowing for the idea of evil man history, right? Mm -hmm. And both things support uh, a very particular worldview as well. Because if, if Trump is the evil man who's making all things bad, then if Trump goes away, then the quote unquote soul of America can be restored when a good man, uh, a great man, Joe Biden, comes along and set, thing, set things right. Then nothing is structural, nothing is built into the system. It's all about good people doing good things and standing up to bad people who do bad things. Um, and, you know, we, this article came out while we were reading and, and preparing for this interview with, with, with Priya. Um, and it's, you know, it, Meacham is, would have been very much at home, I would say, you know, serving as some administrator in, in you know, the East India Company in like the late 18th, early 19th century, rubbing shoulders with uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay uh, and, and, you know, writing his paeans to progress and, and liberty being brought with, uh, with the British Empire. So the more things change, the more things stay the same, I guess. There will always be, it seems, places for people like Meacham or Macaulay or their like in the halls of power. Yeah, and that's what makes it so, you know, devilishly hard 
sometimes to, to get out of that narrative uh, hole in the ground. In other words, yes. it's familiar. Uh, it it has these sort of um, you know equal and opposite moral uh, compass points that are reassuring. You know, um, yeah. And uh, you know the kind of triumphalism. You know, he a guy like Meacham sees Andrew Jackson after all as an American lion. That was again yeah. the title of his Pulitzer Prize winning biography. Uh, well, I'm not I'm not going to bother beating up on Jackson today, but you know to take the very font of power in this case an American president and suggest that that's where you somehow find the soul of a people. It, that's that's a, a formula that I think we can really no longer afford to indulge in, as if to to find that good counterpoint to the bad, as you were suggesting, even when it's a dark character like an Andrew Jackson, that that somehow you've done your moral uh, what lifting, you know, you've done your moral yeah. uh, digging, and and now you can be rest assured that somehow things are are back to where they're supposed to be. But as we have been treated to this last year, things are not where they're supposed to be. And getting back to that normal is really not a very good option for us. Another piece that we liked a lot uh, just, uh, you know, in recent days was Timothy Snyder, the Yale historian, uh, did a piece for the New York Times on the spate of laws that are now passing in the United States, what he calls memory laws. That in several states uh, in our country, the uh, legislatures have, have passed some kind of punitive mandate against teachers teaching what they call critical race theory. You know, we've talked a bit about this or the 1619 project. And I know we were both struck by Snyder's piece because he draws a kind of global frame looking at uh, the Soviets during the early Stalin period and the, uh, the great famines that swept across Ukraine and elsewhere that were eventually revised, the narratives for them were revised, uh, just as in more recent years, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine uh, has been once again narrated uh, under under penalty, right, of, uh, you know, of, of what, of the gulag or something, you know, for those mm. who refuse. So, uh, you know, we see these things happening in the United States and uh, we couldn't help but be struck, I think, by uh, some of the, uh, you know, what some of the parallels, right? Uh, and why a book like Priya Sadia's uh, Times Monster and, and others that people are doing are so absolutely necessary to not just dig ourselves out of a hole, but to, you know, to stop getting in deeper with this <laughs> really, stop digging. stop digging, getting, you know, this really disturbing sort of directional, I don't know if we call it a trend or a cycle, a political cycle, or if we just call it the last 400 years, you know, of Western history of, you know, creating these systems that, you know, dedicate themselves to liberty, let's say, but then use their, you know, instruments of power, their mechanisms of control to try and um, erase, uh, try and uh, silence, try to demonize you know the the peoples of history who have often most often been the subject of their heavy-handed uh, violence and oppression absolutely you know there's it's this is this thing i was talking about in the in the intro is that this is this is one of those books where once you read it um you start noticing things all around you that that kind of are relevant to it or that it speaks to um and you know that the timothy, timothy snyder piece absolutely the piece on, on john meacham but then 
um, more recently, actually just this morning, uh, I was reading about the uh, upcoming Afghani uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan of, of, of U.S. troops, mm-hmm. and I, it made me think back to something that that Priya wrote in in uh, Times Monster. She's she says British officials reflecting on the century near its end, so the end of the 19th century, resorted to the mind-bending logic that frequent bursts of violence during the period of quote-unquote absolute peace that the British had brought showed what would happen if Britain were to depart. Right? So it's this, again, as she says, mind-bending logic that, uh, that you know, the violence that's there just shows how th- things are going to get worse if the British are going to leave, so the British can therefore never leave lest they create anarchy. Um, so I, I happened to uh, see this, this headline in the New York Times, and it's uh, quoting General Austin S. Miller, who I guess is the uh, commander-in-chief of uh, forces in Afghanistan, and he is not a big fan of the withdrawal, and he says, or he said, he's quoted as saying, quote, civil war is certainly a path that can be visualized if we leave Afghanistan. Hmm. That should be a concern for the world. I mean, the logic is is almost exactly the same mm-hmm. as, as what Priya was talking about mm-hmm. in the British Empire, that all the violence that's happening in Afghanistan, um, you know, while U.S. forces are there, mean that U.S. forces can't leave lest violence break out in Afghanistan. Um, it's forever war. It's forever empire. It's self-reinforcing logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all based in the same kind of progressive idea that we need to stay because only through our continued occupation, our continued rule over these territories, can things somehow get better um, in, in, in these places as well. That, you know, what the British Empire was the force of progress, the force of liberty, and now U.S. foreign policy is playing that same role in the world in the minds of particular, you know, generals and writers mm-hmm. and historians mm-hmm. and politicians. Yeah, you know, when you read me that that quote, I, I, I thought it was... Uh... Yeah, mind-bending is is a good (laughs) uh, descriptor, right? It's Orwellian logic, you know, or it's Dr. Strangelove logic. And and, and you you can't help but be, you know, a little disconcerted when you you understand the degree to which that sort of logic has often been supported by the historical writing, you know, about these systems. And not just John Meacham. I mean, he's he's an obvious example, but even those who I'm sure would be quite, chagrin to to you know for for it to be suggested that somehow you know the the scholarship that you know the, that they produced you know about oh let's say you know the nation state uh, maybe the american revolution or something you know that it was in any way you know part and and, and parcel of some kind of you know rollout of power you know that mm. that it was simply you know that data argument empirical uh, you know, reporting or witnessing of history, but uh, yeah, when you when you look at when you drill into these things and you look at these memory laws, like Schneider's talking about, you know, he makes a great point. He said it's a perverse goal. Teachers succeed if students do not understand something. In other words, <laughs> these laws that make it a crime potentially, you know, a punitive law against teaching 1619 or teaching a lot of the languages if students are made to feel bad about racism in American past. So you're basically suggesting that preserving a certain feeling, which you would attribute, you know, to to a student, a certain feeling somehow justifies the kind of punitive nature of these things. 
Uh, you know, or you look at the, you know, the, the air commander's logic about, well, uh, you know, after 20 years of war in Afghanistan, if we leave, there's going to be violence, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and you think, you know, this logic seems so absurdist, you know, but if you couch it in these narrative terms of American rescue, American democracy, you know, the exporting of liberty or the, you know, for that matter, the British Empire and sort of Churchillian inspiration. What happens is that absurdist logic somehow gets what? It gets um, somehow palatable. It gets, you know, it's somehow mixed in with something that gets digested, you know, and what is supposed to be a great, you know, a great meal or something. And so it doesn't it doesn't get recognized, I think, for the really destructive, ultimately destructive quality, you know, that it uh, that it inheres. Yeah, and that, you know, it gets back to what I was talking about in, in the previous episode, which is that the best, you know, narratives of power and legitimizing narratives, whatever we want to call them, have that ability to shape and form to the needs of, uh, to, to the, you know, the, the ideological needs of the nation, of the empire, such that, you know, these things that absent that the narrative, the prevailing narrative would make no sense and people would laugh at, just fit perfectly into the way we understand who we are and what we do. Um, such that we don't question, you know, that, of course, we need to stay in Afghanistan forever. Mm -hmm. Of course, the British Empire can never leave. Uh, anarchy would be the result in a situation mm -hmm. where there's already violence and corruption and uh, poverty and famine, all these things. Um, you know, narratives matter in, in that way. And, and I think that's, you know, as we kind of finish up here, I think that's one of the things that I'm going to take away from, from Time's Monster and from Priya's work more broadly is, is I've, I've kind of struggled with this idea about, you know, how much does the way we think uh, determine the way we act, right? Because um, I, I think it's possible to see those those things as separate. That that I've kind of thought at times that that we do what we do, and then we construct ideas to um, to justify the things we do. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of suggesting that we create these ideas, and those ideas allow us and give us the the, the room mm -hmm. to commit certain actions mm -hmm. and I, I i found that pretty convincing actually in, in her book i asked her that question about you know the, the rise of of race in the late late 19th century and how that actually affected the lived experience of indians in the empire um and so you know it's something i'm going to take away from this is that we have to be very very aware of these manners of thought these manners of of narrative um, because what they can do um and as she, she suggests so uh, eloquently is they can provide that cover uh, that allows us to commit horrifying acts as long as we can understand it as in the nature of of progress of liberty of all these these payons to you know the spread of democracy and moder modernity and these things that we've seen so much of in the past few centuries oh yeah no i like that i like that a lot and i i would for my part i would leave it today you know with with those in our audience who may be educators you know, yeah. facing this kind of chilling, you know, of, of punitive laws regarding which narratives can uh, be taught, which narratives can't be taught and that kind of thing, you know, pushback, pushback ultimately. I mean, the lesson I think of Time's Monster for me, you know, one of the one of the lessons of the book was that if you don't, you know, then then again, you're you're only helping uh, to keep this, these systems alive you know in mm -hmm. other words you 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 are in some sense um implicated you know in in their um you know their their destruction and 
and it's not always easy, particularly for for K twelve teachers. You know, are working within these systems, these these dimensions of power, and control these top down administrative systems with their state standards, and and now this kind of you know political hectoring, you know, from the right wing, uh, with laws being passed, memory laws being passed. We really don't have any good moral choice but to push back against these things and to be you know um, be confident you know in our in our duty really you know to 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 keep searching for the narratives that offer the kind of moral uh clarity that uh, you know are ultimately you know our best bet uh against the retrograde stuff so uh, listen i hope our audience had as much fun listening uh to our talk today with professor priya satya uh, as much fun as we had making it. How's that? Oh, I, I, I hope so as well. And uh, we will talk to you again soon on History Against the Grain. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one.